You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Last year, I did an episode called Introducing the Cyberspace Sandtable Series, the DNC Compromise. I got the idea from my old military days when, after my unit completed an on-the-ground field exercise, the leaders would all gather around the map board for a hot wash and replay the exercise to see what we could learn. For future exercises, and more importantly, future battles, we would want to repeat all the good things we did and forget all the things that didn't work. If we were really fancy, we would use an honest-to-goodness physical contour map, complete with sand to represent the train, thus the phrase sand table, and plastic army soldiers to represent the units on the ground. Or, you know, rocks and twigs, whatever we had handy. Now, since some network defenders don't like using the military metaphor in conjunction with InfoSec, I made the point that hot washes were no different from when Tom Brady, the recently retired and perhaps most successful NFL quarterback of all time, studied hours of game film each week to prepare for his next contest. I made the case that we as network defenders might learn a lot by adopting some version of these sand table exercises, or if you will, game film reviews, to learn how to improve our own digital defenses. I started by walking us through the infamous Russian compromise of the Democratic National Committee in 2016. In this show, I'm going to dust off the sand table and reset it for 2013, the Chinese compromise of the U.S. government's Office of Personnel Management, or OPM. This is going to be fun. Hold on to your butts. My name is Rick Howard, broadcasting from the CyberWire's Secret Sanctum Sanctorum Studios, located underwater, somewhere along the Patapsco River near Baltimore Harbor. And you're listening to CSO Perspectives, my podcast about the ideas, strategies, and technologies that senior security executives wrestle with on a daily basis. Let's start setting up the sand table with the blue team pieces, the Office of Personnel Management, or OPM. According to the U.S. Congressional Research Service, Congress established the Federal Civilian Workforce when it passed the Pendleton Act in 1883. 
Nothing significantly changed until President Jimmy Carter signed the 1978 Civil Service Reform Act, which, among other things, created OPM and gave the new organization responsibility for human capital management, benefits, and vetting. Essentially, OPM became the HR department for federal civilian employees. In 1996, almost 20 years later, OPM contracted the vetting piece of their mission to a commercial company, the U.S. Investigation Services, or USIS, in an effort to save costs. In 2009, almost 10 years later, they added two more contractors, Keypoint and Khaki. This is important because the Chinese hackers, most likely the adversary group called Deep Panda, used USIS and Keypoint as a third-party digital supply chain attack vector. In other words, Deep Panda compromised the USIS and Keypoint networks first and then used the credentials they stole there to legitimately log into the OPM network. More on that in a bit. But in 2005, OPM took on the additional vetting mission for the U.S. military, which made it responsible for over 90% of all background investigations for the federal government. Let's be clear here, though. The difference between typical stored commercial HR data compared to what OPM stores is massively in-depth history. A commercial HR department might store your name, address, education, and past four or five jobs. OPM stores all of that, plus every place you've lived, and all of your friends' and acquaintance names and contact info for the past 10 years. They also keep track of all of your family members. Compound that information with any legal trouble you might have had or any subversive or illegal habits like drug and alcohol use, DWIs, adultery, etc. Plus, organizational affiliations you had during that time, ranging anywhere from your daughter's travel soccer team to that one time when you were in college and donated money to the Communist Party as a joke, allegedly. That's a lot of information. In 2007, an investment firm called Providence Equity Partners bought uses and implemented extreme cost-cutting measures to increase profits. USIS investigators began approving clearances without actually doing the required investigations for a large number of cases. At the end of every month, they would flush unfinished investigations to meet their profit quota. In other words, they approved candidates without doing the investigation and got paid for each. Unfortunately, OPM didn't discover the fraud for another five years. In 2011, USIS became the subject of a whistleblower lawsuit where an insider claimed that USIS used a proprietary computer software program to automatically release OPM background investigations that had not gone through the full review process and thus were not complete. Unbelievable. In terms of workforce size, OPM estimates a total federal workforce of 2.1 million civilian workers. The Department of Veterans Affairs estimates about 19 million U.S. veterans, and the Council of Foreign Relations estimates about 1.3 million active duty personnel. OPM stores vetting material for all of these groups, and that's a lot of people. In terms of espionage and counter-espionage operations, any foreign entity that could get their hands on that data would have a gold mine. They could use it to blackmail federal workers and military personnel to reveal secrets or disrupt important projects or operations. Since the data collected lists all foreign contacts for the past decade, they would have a rich source of potential double agents to track down and neutralize, setting back intelligence collection for years. Not to put too fine a point on it, but the data set will be useful for the next 50 years since it will take that long for the current set of employees and military to age out of the system. In the 2016 report on the OPM breach published by Congress, the title of the report sums up the impact. Quote, 
the OPM data breach, how the government jeopardized our national security for more than a generation, end quote. Now, regular listeners to this podcast know that I'm a big believer in first principle thinking. As security professionals, our first principle task is to reduce the probability of material impact due to a cyber event. OPM is a giant bureaucratic U.S. federal government organization. Leaders of that institution have many things on their plate. But OPM leadership had known for years that their internal security posture was garbage. Between 2005 and 2014, OPM had four directors. Their own internal inspector general told them all, year after year, that the data they hosted was extremely sensitive and valuable, and that security measures they had in place had material weakness, significant deficiencies and concerns, and was getting worse. None of the four directors thought that the data they stored was material enough to their organization, and indeed to the entire U.S. government, to actually spend resources to improve the situation. Before the breach, OPM didn't know where the copies of all the data were located, and they didn't even have a security team. Let's turn our attention to the deep panda side of the sand table. The origins of the Chinese cyber attack capability can be traced to a white paper, later turned into a book, published by two People's Liberation Army colonels, Chiao Wang and Wang Xiansui, in 1999. They developed their thesis after watching the U.S. military's utter dominance of the Iraqi army in the 1991 Persian Gulf War. They concluded that any nation, but especially China, going toe-to-toe with the U.S. in a conventional military fight could only result in, at best, a standoff with massive damage on both sides and, at worst, utter destruction to the American opponent. They proposed instead something called unrestricted warfare. In an interview about the book, Colonel Chiao said, quote, The first rule of unrestricted warfare is that there are no rules, with nothing forbidden, end quote. And if that sounds eerily similar to the line from the famous movie Fight Club, released around the same time of the book, 1999, it's not. I thought so too, but I checked. The line from the movie is, The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. Chiao and Wang had a different view altogether. Unrestricted warfare means that you don't fight based on the rules set by the superior opponent. Tyler Tidwell, in reviewing the book, says that the two authors proposed to radically expand the conventional military battle space into financial markets, television, cyberspace, and outer space. In fact, he says that physical tank-on-tank violence is the last refuge. You never want to get there. Interestingly, the Chinese unrestricted warfare doctrine is pretty close to the Russian Gerasimov doctrine established in 2014, some 16 years later. Now, policy wonks will argue with me on whether these ideas constitute an actual national doctrine, and I'm confident I would lose those debates. But the one thing I'm sure of is that the big five cyber nations, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, and the U.S., and lots of other nations who are dabbing their feet in the cyber pool— India, Pakistan, Palestine, Israel, and Vietnam, have determined in the last two decades that they can get a whole lot more done in terms of national objectives by pursuing, as David Sanger says in his book, The Perfect Weapon, a continuous low-level cyber conflict. It's low-level because it rarely crosses a line that might start an actual tank-on-tank battle, but the effects can be devastating. And China was one of the first nations to jump into the cyber pool and have a major impact. 
My editor, John Petrick, points out that unrestricted warfare is really an extension of asymmetric warfare, and he would be right. According to John, the granddaddy of asymmetric warfare was the French naval theory from Genie Cole, again, my French is awful, who thought the inexpensive torpedo boat rendered the battleship obsolete. Britannica Online defines asymmetric warfare as, quote, unconventional strategies and tactics adopted by a force when the military capabilities of belligerent powers are not simply unequal, but are so significantly different that they cannot make the same sorts of attacks on each other, end quote. This is guerrilla warfare, and weaker forces have used the strategy against stronger forces since the 6th century. In more modern times, guerrilla warfare defeated the U.S. in Vietnam and in Afghanistan. The genius of Chiao and Wang, though, is extending the idea to cyberspace. In 2003, U.S. military network defenders discovered that Chinese cyber operators had inserted themselves into large swatches of military networks around the world. I was the commander of the U.S. Army Computer Emergency Response Team, the ACERT, back then, and military leadership classified that activity with a really cool code name called Titan Rain. Before Titan Rain, the most serious hacker I tracked at the ACERT was a British citizen, Gary McKinnon, who was confident that if he poked around enough military networks, he was sure to find the evidence that aliens existed. We were all kind of secretly hoping that he'd be successful. After Titan Rain, all the military cyber defenders started operating at a different level. Instead of defeating low-level cyber criminals, we were now laser-focused on nation-state cyber espionage activity. By 2006, the general public started to learn that the U.S. wasn't the only Chinese target. Chinese cyber operators compromised Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense and the American Institute in Taiwan. In 2007, the Chinese found their way into the U.S. Office of the Secretary of Defense and German government entities that included the Federal Chancellery, the Ministry of Economics and Technology, and the Federal Ministry for Education and Research. At the same time, the public started to learn that the Chinese weren't just interested in government secrets. They were after business intelligence, too. That same year, 2007, the British Domestic Intelligence Service, MI5, alerted 300 business leaders, warning that the People's Liberation Army, or PLA, targets confidential business information. Five years later, in 2012, Keith Alexander, when he was the National Security Agency Director and Commander of the U.S. Cyber Command, and by the way, he was my senior raider when I was at the ACERT, said, In fact, in my opinion, it's the greatest transfer of wealth in history. Around 2008 and probably as early as 2006, the Chinese penetrated the Lockheed Martin classified network and stole the plans related to the American F-35 fighter jet. That same year, they compromised the election campaigns of both Senator Obama and Senator McCain, as well as the White House Information System and NASA's Kennedy Space Center and Goddard Space Flight Center. A Canadian research team in 2009 published intelligence on the GhostNet cyber espionage campaign that targeted government embassies from Germany, the Philippines, India, Pakistan, Portugal, and the Tibetan government in exile. And then, in early 2010, Google sent out shockwaves when it announced that it had been hacked by the Chinese government. When all was said and done, two different Chinese government entities in separate and uncoordinated missions had established a persistent presence within the Google networks. The PLA, who stole intellectual property, specifically they went after the source code from tech companies, and the Ministry of State Security, or MSS, who targeted political dissidents like the Dalai Lama, the Uyghurs, and the Tibetan ethnic minorities. 
The announcement was a shockwave because before, no commercial company would ever admit in public that it had been compromised by some cyber adversary for fear of risking its reputation on the stock market. Google opened the door for everybody. Today, nobody even blinks twice when we hear about another breach. Just as an aside, the Cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame candidate book, This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends by Nicole Perlroth, has the most complete account of the Google compromise that I have ever encountered. For that alone, the book is probably worth reading. In 2011, the Chinese government stole the key material that was the essential secret sauce used in the RSA Secure Token two-factor authentication product and later used that intelligence to compromise Lockheed Martin. And the irony isn't lost on me that the famous Beltway Bandit U.S. contracting company Lockheed Martin, the company responsible for arguably the greatest innovation in cybersecurity strategy, inventing the intrusion kill chain prevention model in 2010, was the victim of not one but two major Chinese cyber espionage campaigns around the same time, the F-35 fighter jet espionage operation and the compromise of the RSA Secure Token two-factor authentication product. All of this activity from about 2003 to 2012 sets the stage for what can arguably be classified as the most impactful cyber espionage campaign that is known to the public, the OPM breach of 2013. Turn one, Deep Panda, the red team, from July 2012 to March 2014. Using the Lockheed Martin intrusion kill chain model as a guide, it's unclear how Deep Panda gained initial access to the OPM uses and key point networks. With all the analysis after the fact, from OPM's IT team, two security vendors, Silence and SciTech, and a congressional committee, how Deep Panda conducted early recon missions and exploited the first victim machines is unknown. This is mostly because OPM wasn't logging anything useful in terms of threat intelligence. What is known is that another Chinese adversary group, commonly referred to as Axiom, but also attributed to China's Second Bureau of the People's Liberation Army, Unit 61398, managed to sneak a piece of malware, HiKit, onto the OPM network as early as July 2012, but probably much sooner. The U.S. CERT notified OPM that something was beaconing out to a Chinese-owned command and control server. Axiom and Deep Panda are not the same adversary group if you compare the steps each takes across the intrusion kill chain. But it's not a big stretch of the imagination to speculate that the Chinese government would use one group to establish initial access and another group to perform lateral movement and exfiltration operations. Today, cyber criminals do it all the time. Probably sometime in 2013, Deep Panda established a command and control server called opmsecurity.org. The owner of the domain was listed as Steve Rogers. Marvel Cinematic Universe fans will recognize the name as the alter ego to Captain America, thus proving again that hackers are science fiction and fantasy fans too. Recall that the code developed by the Russians in the NotPetya attacks against Ukraine was riddled with references from a famous and beloved science fiction book entitled Dune, written by Frank Herbert back in 1965, long before the Dune movie came out last year. Andy Greenberg's Cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame book on NotPetya is even called Sandworm, a reference to the mythical beast that inhabits the planet Arrakis and the source of all the drama in the first book. 
By April 2013, Deep Panda had established a beachhead on the USIS network. They stole legitimate credentials from USIS employees and used them to log on to the OPM network. Once there, they began reconning for useful information. By November, they had exfiltrated manuals of IT system architecture, giving them the blueprints of how to navigate the OPM networks. And by December, Deep Panda had exploited the first victim machine on the Keypoint network. Turn 1, OPM, the blue team this time, from January 2014 to April 2014. In January of 2014, on the back end of the 2011 whistleblower complaint, the U.S. Justice Department sued USIS in a 25-page complaint filed in the U.S. District Court in Montgomery, Alabama, claiming from 2008 to 2012 about 40% of the company's investigations were fraudulently submitted. Newspaper headlines highlighted the many incomplete cases, but two were particularly memorable. USIS approved the background checks for the government insider Edward Snowden, who leaked classified documents to the public in June 2013, and for the mentally unstable Navy Yard shooter who killed 12 people in Washington, D.C. in September 2013. In the meantime, through no fault of their own, the OPM IT team had not a single security prevention tool deployed on their networks. They tried to convince their leadership to do something over the years, but OPM directors rejected all requests. Instead, leadership relied on outside entities to monitor their networks for them. Like the U.S. CERT and the U.S. government-developed Einstein Intrusion Detection System that was positioned outside of the OPM networks proper. Throughout the entire attack, the Einstein system didn't detect any deep panda activity at all. Three months later, on 20 March, the U.S. CERT notified OPM again of more data exfiltration. The last time was July 2012. OPM investigators determined that since the stolen data didn't contain PII, or personal identifiable information, and that the hacker was confined to a certain part of the network, OPM leadership didn't have to go public with the incident. Note, why the OPM IT team thought that Dependent was confined to a certain part of the network when they had no way to confine them deployed is a mystery, end note. They decided that the best course of action was to monitor the threat in order to gain counterintelligence and to start planning what they called the Big Bang, a system reset that would purge the attackers from the system. The OPM CIO, Donna Seymour, approved the plan five days later. Note, let me just point out here that an IT team with no security experience, no security tools deployed, and no logging telemetry to speak of, decided to monitor the hacker to gain intelligence. Incredible. End note. On 21 April, an OPM contractor from SRI found another piece of malware that communicated with the command and control server, opmsecurity.org, that Deep Panda had established in 2013. One last thing for this round, on 21 April, which happens to be my birthday, by the way, an OPM contractor from SRA found another piece of malware that communicated with the command and control server, opmsecurity.org, that Deep Panda had established in 2013. Turn two, Deep Panda, the red team, from May 2014 to March 2015. 
On 7 May, using credentials stolen from the Keypoint network, Deep Panda legitimately logged into the OPM network and installed a remote access trojan, or RAT, called PlugX on roughly 10 machines for command and control purposes. PlugX had been around as far back as 2008 and had been used by several Chinese adversary groups in the past. APT-1, 3, 27, 41, Dragon OK, Gallium, Mustang Panda, and TA-459. By 27 May, 20 days later, Deep Panda began installing key logger software on database administrators' workstations, and on 5 June, they installed malware on a Keypoint web server. 15 days later, 20 June, they began extended remote sessions with OPM servers containing sensitive data, and they probably gained access to the OPM mainframe on 23 June. By July, Deep Panda had discovered the OPM jump server, a kind of toll booth that stands between the day-to-day networking resources and sensitive data resources, in this case, the OPM background check data on all federal employees and military personnel. If you want to access the crown jewels, you have to go through the jump server. Deep Panda installed a PlugX variant on the jump server. And according to the congressional report, quote, during the long 4th of July weekend when staffing was sure to be light, the hackers began to run a series of commands meant to prepare data for exfiltration, end quote. Deep Panda collected batches of personnel information wrapped in .zip or .rar files and stored them on hard drives for later exfiltration. Those file types are archive file formats that support data compression. On 21 July, OPM Director Catherine Arculetta downplayed the 20 March breach in an ABC interview. Quote, we did not have a breach in security. There was no information that was lost. We were confident as we worked through this that we would be able to protect the data. End quote. Here's Congressman Jason Chavitz, a Democrat from Utah, grilling Director Arculetta on that statement in the congressional hearings in 2016, two years later. So Ms. Archuleta, when we rewind the tape and look at the uh, WJLA TV interview that you did on July 21st, you said, again, we did not have a breach in security. There was no information that was lost. That was false, wasn't it? I was referring to PII. No, you weren't. That wasn't the question. That was not the question. You said, and I quote, there was no information that was lost. Is that accurate or inaccurate? The understanding that I had of that question at that time referred to PII. It was misleading, it was a lie, and it wasn't true. At the end of July 2014, Deep Panda established another command and control server, opmlearning.org, this time registered to Tony Stark, the alter ego of Iron Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Tony Stark makes you feel he's a cool exec with a heart of Fifteen days later, on 16 August, the malware installed by Deep Panda on the Keypoint web server back on 5 June 2014 stopped functioning. But by the end of August, Deep Panda had exfiltrated all of the data they had collected in .zip and .rar formats. And this is all the detailed information for some 20 million federal civilian employees and military personnel. By 20 October, 45 days later, Deep Panda used OPM credentials to bridge over to the U.S. Department of the Interior, which held another 4.2 million personnel records. And at this point, Deep Panda's mission is almost complete at OPM. So, they turned their attention to Anthem, a U.S.-based insurance company. They already gained access to the Anthem network sometime in April 2014. In December, the group exfiltrated some 80 million customer records. 
In February 2015, a commercial intelligence firm, Threat Connect, discovered that the Anthem attackers used the same Tony Stark-registered command and control server that OPM hackers used. In other words, Deep Panda. And the last nail in the coffin on 26 March 2015, Deep Panda exfiltrated just over 5.5 million fingerprint records of federal employees. Turn 2, OPM, the blue team, from May 2014 to December 2014. On 27 May 2014, OPM executed its Big Bang strategy and thought they were successful. Unfortunately, they didn't know about the Deep Panda's compromise of Keypoint and how Deep Panda stole legitimate OPM credentials. OPM technicians had no visibility of Deep Panda's keylogger installs onto the OPM systems, remote sessions with OPM-sensitive servers, access to the OPM mainframe, and the collection and storage of background investigation data. On 10 June, just over 10 days later, OPM CIO Donna Seymour testified before the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Subcommittee on her strategic information technology plan. She didn't mention any of this because she didn't know about it, but she also didn't mention Deep Panda's activity from March through May, which she did know about because she approved the Big Bang plan. Two days later, on 12 June, the OPM tech team deployed an evaluation copy of one of Silence's security products. This is the first OPM security detection tool ever deployed. They hadn't purchased it yet. The product was just a feature-reduced demo. Ten days later, on 22 June, the Department of Homeland Security released an incident report for OPM's first breach discovered back on 20 March. In an interview with the New York Times a month later on July 9th, an OPM spokesperson acknowledged the March 2014 breach, but emphasized that they lost no PII, just manuals and technical documents. This is absolutely true because, as I said, they didn't know about the key point compromise yet. They did neglect to say that some of the technical documents were blueprints of the OPM networking architecture. A month later, in August, USIS notified OPM regarding their breach back in 2013, over a year after the fact. USA's leadership acknowledged the loss of some 25,000 government employee records. OPM responded by issuing a stop work order on 6 August until everything could be sorted out. The USA's delay in notifying OPM about their breach, coupled with the Justice Department's whistleblower lawsuit on fraudulent work practice, convinced OPM to decline to renew the USA's contract in September. But the damage had been done in two parts. Massive fraud in not conducting background checks for years, in a digital supply chain entry point for Deep Panda. That left Khaki and Keypoint as the remaining contractors conducting background investigations. Later that year, in December, Keypoint announced that it had been breached to the tune of 4.2 million records exfiltrated. Turn 3, OPM, the blue team, from April 2015 to June 2015. Sometime in the spring of 2015, OPM discovered evidence of the remote sessions between Deep Panda and OPM's sensitive servers over a year after the sessions happened. On 9 March, they thought they'd shut down the communication between the OPM networks and the Deep Panda command and control server, opmsecurity.org, registered to Steve Rogers. But a month later, on 15 April, OPM's investigators discovered more Deep Panda command and control beaconing to opmsecurity.org with the Silence Evaluation product. 
As they notified the U.S. Third about the traffic, they realized that Deep Panda still had a foothold in their system. The next day, 16 April, almost a year to the day since Deep Panda's first initial access, OPM leadership finally assigned a person, Curtis Major, to eradicate the adversary group from the OPM network. His first move was to ask for Silence's help using the demo product to diagnose forensic images of OPM servers. The demo product wasn't built for that. OPM needed a tool with more capabilities. Silence agreed to let OPM use their upgraded product, Silence Protect, in a free trial mode on 2,000 devices. And according to the congressional report, the product lit up like a Christmas tree with widespread infections. Three days later, on 19 April, a Silence technician discovered a rare Deep Panda mistake. When Deep Panda finished the exfiltration of all the data back in December, they forgot to delete at least one .rar file. That gave the Silence technician the lead to discover the massive data exfiltration. In an email to his CEO, Stuart McClure, explaining the discovery, he said, quote, They are f by the way. End quote. According to the congressional report, by 21 April, three days later, besides all the Deep Panda evidence discovered by the Silence Protect product, it also detected some, quote, 2,000 individual pieces of malware that were unrelated to the attack in question, everything from routine adware to dormant viruses, end quote. More importantly, the product also discovered the PlugX variant. It was only present on about 10 OPM machines, but they were key machines, including the jump server. On the same day, 21 April, another commercial vendor, SciTech, arrived at OPM for a long-scheduled appointment to demonstrate their Cypher product. According to the congressional report, quote, the breach was not public knowledge at this point, and OPM staff did not share any information about it with company founder Ben Cotton, who was there to lead the demo. Cypher also detected the malware, and Cotton immediately agreed to help with the response, end quote. According to SciTech, at the end of the entire incident, OPM owed them over $800,000, but because no contract was put in place, SciTech was never paid. Two days later, on 23 April, OPM finally decided that it had a major breach on its hands involving the loss of PII. That triggered a requirement to notify Congress. The next day, 24 April, in conjunction with a scheduled power outage as part of a Washington, D.C. power grid modernization program, OPM eradicated all the malware that had been previously discovered. Back then, two days later, 26 April, Silence engineers discovered evidence of the command and control sessions from important and sensitive servers back in June 2014, which triggered another notification to Congress. In May, they discovered yet another large-scale exfiltration, and that triggered a third requirement to notify Congress. Finally, on 4 June, OPM briefed the media about the breach. The Committee on Oversight and Government Reform in the U.S. House of Representatives held the first of two hearings on 16 June. Three days later, 19 June, the commercial security vendor FireEye attributed Deep Panda, first discovered in the wild by another security vendor, CrowdStrike, as the adversary group that conducted attacks against OPM. At least they used some of the same tactics. But Director Arculeta repeatedly told the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee that she couldn't say if any PII was lost in the 2014 hack, but didn't mention any of the most recent developments. According to the National Review, quote, her answers under oath in front of the Oversight Committee left Republicans and even some Democrats convinced she either knows exceptionally little about the state of her agency's cybersecurity 
or she's comfortable lying about it, insisting that breaches aren't really breaches and that obviously insecure systems are secure, end quote. Seymour, in her testimony, only mentioned the initial exfiltration of tech manuals in March 2014 and nothing about the latest discoveries. She also lied under oath about the OPM response. She told the committee that OPM had purchased the Cypher tool and that they were running it in a quarantine environment. They were really running it on the production network. She also testified that the manuals stolen in March 2014 were merely outdated security documents, when in fact they were mostly current security architecture documents. At the end of the month, 30 June, OPM finally purchased the Silence Protect product a day before the trial period was set to expire. They were in trial mode the entire time. Silence didn't actually receive payment for months. OPM deployed the Silence Protect product on over 10,000 endpoints and found nearly one piece of malware for every five devices. On 9 July 2015, OPM issued a press release confirming 21.5 million records were compromised. The very next day, Director Arculeta resigned, and in February 2016, Donna Seymour resigned. According to the Washington Post, Ellen Nakashima, quote, the vast majority of those affected by the Deep Panda attack, 21.5 million people, were included in an OPM repository of security clearance files. At least 4.2 million people were affected by the breach of a separate database containing personnel records, including social security numbers, job assignments, and performance evaluations, end quote. James Comey, the FBI director at the time, said, quote, It is a very big deal from a national security perspective and from a counterintelligence perspective. It's a treasure trove of information about everybody who has worked for, tried to work for, or works for the United States government, end quote. The NSA senior counsel, Joe Brenner, said, quote, This is Crown Jewels material, a goldmine for a foreign intelligence service. This is not the end of American human intelligence, but it's a significant blow, end quote. And finally, former director of the CIA, Michael Hayden, said, OPM data, quote, remains a treasure trove of information that is available to the Chinese until the people represented by the information age off. There's no fixing it, end quote. The deep panda compromise of OPM's clearance information, coupled with the anthem attacks that took place immediately after, might be the largest and longest-lasting one-two cyber espionage punch known to the public against any known country. The vast amounts of data collected, plus the longevity of it, over 50 years since that's how long it will take for all individuals caught in the net, like me, to age out of the government service. This will be useful for many, many years to come. Hello. This just makes it perfect. This just makes it perfect. We're behind. They're all fired up. We got class, we're going to find it out. We got class, and I know we got it. And what we got to do? First place, our defense has got to go out there and take the ball. Our defense hasn't been taking the ball. Then when we get the ball, we got to have 11 people. 11 people that's just going to do their job, whatever it is. It's going to do their job and try to score every time you get the football. That was Bear Bryant, head coach of the University of Alabama football team and considered by many to be the greatest college football coach of all time, giving a halftime speech to his team in 1967, basically a hot wash, in order to set a course for his team in the second half. So in a way, this is my version of a Bear Bryant review. 
And it's easy to Monday morning quarterback what the OPM leadership should have done over the years to prevent the success of the Deep Panda espionage operation. Before I pile on, I just want to say that OPM's leadership, Director Catherine Arculeta, CIO Donna Seymour, and many others made a risk assessment. They looked at what their own inspector general told them about the state of OPM's security posture and made a call. They decided that the risk was acceptable compared to the, all the other risks that they were dealing with. This is what leaders do. They make risk calls. It's why we pay them the big bucks. In this case, they got it completely wrong. I've said many times on this show that in my younger days, when the leadership didn't approve some grand plan of mine, I blamed the leadership for being naive and uninformed or incapable of understanding the complexity of my security world. In hindsight, that was just immaturity and hubris talking. What really happened was I didn't convince them that the risk I was talking about was more important than some of those other business risks that they thought had a higher priority. When I think back to those discussions, I have to admit that at least some of those times, the business leaders were right. Back then, I didn't have the tools to communicate with any authority or precision what that exact risk to the business was. This is why on this podcast, when I talk about cybersecurity first principles, risk forecasting as a strategy is as important as zero trust, intrusion kill chain prevention, and resilience. So let's first talk about forecasting risk for OPM prior to the first Deep Panda breach in 2013. This one's pretty easy. OPM had no security team and no prevention or detection tools in place before the breach. There is no way that they could have noticed activity from any known adversary groups across the intrusion kill chain at that time, let alone the Chinese. They had nobody watching. And even if they did, they weren't collecting any telemetry from their endpoints and networking nodes. And even if they were, they had no tools in place to detect cyber bad guy behavior across the kill chain. After all the public intelligence about Chinese cyber operations from the early 2000s to the OPM breach, OPM leadership had refused all upgrades. They were essentially blind. When they finally installed their first tool after the fact, the Silence product, as the congressional report said, it lit up like a Christmas tree. In terms of zero trust, they were architecturally in a better position. The OPM IT team had placed a jump server between the day-to-day -day OPM operations and the crown jewel data for employee and military background checks. That's the good news. The bad news is that they weren't watching it. They didn't know that Deep Panda installed software on it, PlugX, and that somebody was storing .zip and .rar files somewhere on the sensitive network. They definitely didn't notice 21 million records going through the jump server and out the back door to the internet. Even if all of that were rock solid, OPM had no zero trust controls in place for their contractors, uses, Keypoint, and Khaki, to restrict their permissions. In hindsight, those contractors should be allowed to write to the OPM database, but not read any records they didn't create. If they did need to read other records or change records once submitted, some secondary OPM control should have been in place to check for legitimacy. The contractors definitely shouldn't have been allowed to copy data out of the OPM network, and they also shouldn't have been allowed to store data on their own networks for any length of time. For resilience, OPM had no incident response plan, no crisis plan at all. From reading through the congressional record, you get the sense that they were making it up as they were going. Their decision to monitor the adversary when they first noticed them and not to eradicate them when they had no real way to do that was a huge blunder. If they had reacted immediately, they would have had an opportunity window where they might have prevented the exfiltration of 20 million records. The first step should have been to call in the FBI. 
OPM had no resources to reject a nation-state threat like this, but the FBI did. Before the OPM breach, after years and years of negative cybersecurity report cards from her own IG, Director Arculeta should have at least had the FBI on speed dial. In response to the sensitive data she was protecting, she should have collaborated with the FBI on the crisis plan before anything happened. Now, Deep Panda's intent was not to destroy, they were stealing. A robust backup plan wouldn't have helped here. That said, OPM didn't have one. In fact, when the Deep Panda attack started, OPM technicians weren't even sure where all the copies of the data resided on the OPM networks and in their contractor networks. In terms of encryption, it was non-existent. How OPM decided to store this kind of sensitive data in a non-encrypted form is a mystery and a major failure in resiliency and zero-trust planning. If I were doing this analysis before March 2013 and before Deep Panda had any success, I would have told Director Arculeta that OPM was a prime candidate for a ransomware attack, let alone a target for a major cyber espionage operation. I would have told her that there is a 100% chance that some bad guy would penetrate the OPM networks in the next three years. But as I have said many times on this podcast, not all hacks are material to the business. In fact, most of them aren't. In terms of OPM, the material data, the data that if stolen, destroyed, or manipulated would have had a major impact on not just OPM, but the entire U.S. government, is the background check data that OPM was the officially assigned caretaker for. From the congressional hearings on the matter, it was clear that Director Arculeta didn't know that. In my risk forecast to her before the breach, I would have told her that there is a 95% chance that some foreign actor, probably Russia, China, North Korea, or Iran, would gain access to that material in the next three years. The only thing stopping them would be their own bureaucracy and set of priorities. Nothing OPM is doing would deter them in the slightest. As I said, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback massive failures in cybersecurity prevention. The OPM case is like shooting fish in a barrel. And admittedly, I'm still a bit angry that this happened. I'm an old military retiree at this point, and my records got scooped up with the rest of the 20 million records. The credit check service offered by OPM to all impacted personnel after the incident as an appeasement doesn't seem quite adequate for the enormity of the failure. So, if you notice a little harshness in my presentation of this material, I'm not going to deny it. But, for all network defenders, during the heat of the battle, it's tough to take a beat and reflect on what could be done better next time. This is why I'm advocating for cybersecurity sand table exercises to become a staple for network defender best practice. When there isn't a crisis afoot and you can take a few moments to analyze what happened on both sides, you can learn quite a bit. Just like I did while I was still serving in the active army, participating in hot washes after a field exercise. And just like Tom Brady did to prepare for every future football game. Replaying the exercise or watching game film can solidify in your mind what needs to be done before the next crisis. And that's a wrap. As always, if you agree or disagree with anything I have said, hit me up on LinkedIn or Twitter and we can continue the conversation there. Or if you prefer, drop a line to csop at thecyberwire.com. That's C-S-O-P, the at sign, thecyberwire, all one word, dot com. And if you have any questions you would like us to answer here at CSO Perspectives, send a note to the same email address and we will try to address them in the show. Next week, we will be talking about vulnerability management and how it can aid your zero trust strategy. You don't want to miss that. 
The CyberWire CSO Perspectives is edited by John Petrick and executive produced by Peter Kilpie. Our theme song is by Blue Dot Sessions, remixed by the insanely talented Elliot Peltzman, who also does the show's mixing, sound design, and original score. And I am Rick Howard. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this preview of CSO Perspectives, be sure to subscribe to CyberWire Pro and get access to the rest of this episode, as well as all past seasons of CSO Perspectives ad-free. And you all know I love getting rid of the ads. Visit thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro. That's thecyberwire.com slash CSO Pro to explore the many benefits of CyberWire Pro and to subscribe.